Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and I'm joined in this episode by my co-commenter, Cameron Brooks. Our topic in this episode is tradition, which, let's be honest, comes with a lot of baggage, especially in a church context. Traditionalism conjures images of dead orthodoxy, going through the motions, while tradition itself has a tendency to substitute itself for scripture. In this episode, Cameron and I are going to dig into another one of the basics of Reformed Christianity, clarifying the proper place of tradition in the life of the church, and seeing whether it's possible to have tradition without lapsing into mere traditionalism. On a different kind of podcast, we would have opened with the song from the Fiddler on the Roof about tradition, but uh, we don't do that sort of thing here. The topic we're going to talk about, though, is tradition and the importance of tradition, or lack thereof, because, of course, that is a very controversial topic. I think these days, Cameron, it's not unusual for people to think of traditionalist as a synonym for conservative uh, and tradition can often get a bad rap. I think that's true not just in the culture but also in the church and so I thought kind of in the spirit of doing some basic explainer episodes like uh, we did last week on monergism and synergism that it would be interesting to talk about tradition Uh, what tradition is and what role it properly has in the life of the church. And then also maybe some, some uh, abuses of tradition or misunderstandings that can stand in the way. So maybe we'll get the ball rolling just by throwing this out. Like, like what is tradition? Like if we wanted to define the term tradition, uh, what could we do? I mean, I think in scripture, we have a lot of negative references to traditions of men and that sort of thing but without prejudicing the question like like uh what can we say tradition is yeah i i could think of it in terms of so for keeping it within the church anyway I, i could think of it in terms of the global historic church so generally speaking how christians have done their thing since the beginning Mm-hmm. since Jesus and maybe before I can think of it also then in terms of denominations of course denominations have a, a more particular identity and then a particular expression of those catholic global traditions mm-hmm. so that's two senses and and yeah. we do talk about like the christian tradition yep. which would be that universal emphasis yep. what christians have tended to believe or emphasize but then we also will talk about like the Reformed tradition or the mm-hmm. Lutheran tradition or the, the Anabaptist tradition, uh, paradoxically. Yeah. And there we're hitting that particular thing, the yeah. denominational thing, or even different traditions within a denomination as well. Yeah, that was going to be maybe the next level was whether it's a like a particular strain of a denomination or just a particular congregation or geography 
this church or in this region and they've sort of done things this way for a while now, right? <laughs> long enough for it to be a tradition. And now here we are. I mean, I think most people understand what a tradition is generally speaking, but maybe it's helpful to break Christian worship traditions down in terms of those macro to micro levels. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a point in the church where I think we joke about this, that, that, you know, well, this is the way we've always done it. And Mm -hmm. if you change this, people will get angry. That's a tradition, right? Something that you have to do the way you've always done it. And if you change it, it will make people upset. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a tradition, but there's maybe a third a more specific kind of tradition that we might talk about too, because I think this gets to a lot of those biblical usages and it has to do with a tradition of interpretation. Um, In Judaism, for example, you have a tradition of oral interpretation that comes along after the law and comments on, annotates, interprets the law, uh, Midrash, and, and additional sort of interpretations. In Islam, there's the same thing, where there's there's a tradition that comes later that kind of adds on to um, like a tradition of teaching and interpretation that accompanies the original revelation. And of course, in Christianity, depending on which tradition, you know, in the, that other sense you're in, you have something similar. That uh, there is a tradition of interpretation that in some cases stands alongside or, you know, arguably even over scripture, but is definitely regarded as, as a, like it's essential to take this tradition of interpretation into account when you're trying to interpret scripture. Something like that. So is it always a, an interpretation of the text itself? Or is it just some tradition, like you said, alongside yes. the text? Which Well, that's a great question because I think that's, I mean, it brings us into the, into the realm of the polemic because, you know, I think from a, from a Protestant standpoint, you'd want to say, well, it, it is definitely not just an interpretation of the text. Um, it is often, and I think you see this also in in um, the history of Judaism and Islam as well. That it's it it is more like the opinions and speculations of authority figures who've been empowered by institutions that revere the text. A complicated way of saying it, it it's it's a tradition of you know let's say church authorities who then opine in ways that maybe interpret the text or maybe fill the gaps. You know, I think a lot of times these, these teaching traditions speak to the silences in scripture, you know, so an example, again, you know, you could, you could draw examples from all over the place, but um, when you're thinking about uh, like Roman Catholic doctrine, right? So, a question came up recently about holy water. Like where in the Bible does it say, you know, to use holy water, uh, where in the Bible does it explain how to make holy water holy, you know, you know, what's the process and, uh, was the, the water in the Jordan river when Jesus was baptized, holy, you know, or not, you know, questions like that, that, that people naturally have. And when I was asked the question on the top of my head, I did not know, um, what the answer to that would be uh, from like a Roman Catholic source, but 
I, I guessed that what you're likely to find is that that while there's nowhere in the Bible that that says, you know, do this with holy water, here's how you make holy water, things like that, that there is going to be something that like a, a text of some kind that can be pointed to or alluded to that you could argue, well, this is based on that. And so sure enough, some Googling was done and it turns out, yeah, there was a text in numbers that you, that was pointed to and said, well, this is the basis for this. But it also had that feeling of, um, an after the fact justification. Like you have a practice, somebody calls you on it and says, where in the Bible is this found? And so you go scour the Bible and find something that you can, put forward, but it doesn't feel like an idea that anyone just reading the book of numbers and asking, you know, what should we do based on this? They, I don't think anyone would come along saying, Oh no, we haven't been using holy water. We need to fix this. So I think that's a very familiar dynamic to these kinds of teaching traditions, right? That they're not unmoored from the text of scripture uh, they do make reference to it to one degree or another, sometimes a lot of reference and sometimes very little um, and sometimes none, but that they essentially do what scripture is meant to do, right? The, the, the tradition can be used like scripture is used to settle questions and where the Bible has been silent. Oftentimes these traditions step in and give us the answers. Now, you know, I have cited a Roman Catholic example, but it's it's certainly not limited to the Roman Catholic Church. I think when you come to questions like, for example, uh, eschatology, you know, end times prophecy stuff, there's a lot of things the Bible does not say, doesn't reveal to us. And yet there is a very strong interpretive tradition in the evangelical church, for example, that if you were to question it would really shock people because it's their impression that these traditions are just taught in the Bible. Right. And maybe they've never gone back and looked to see whether or not it's really there, but they've been told this. Maybe they've heard sermons preached on these texts in which these points were made. This is the same kind of thing, right? Where you have a person who is a religious authority, who's filling in those gaps with their informed opinion and then that opinion ends up being used more or less the way scripture is used, right? So, okay, so, so that gives us like, like a couple of senses. So we have tradition as like this, this big unifying thing that uh, Christianity has a history. We have traditions, plural, where different groups of, tr- of Christians have developed different practices. And then we also have a more specialized sense of like a teaching tradition uh, that interprets or supplements scripture and then ends up functioning to one extent or another as scripture. Mm-hmm. And so I think with, with those things in mind, we can talk a little bit about like, like what's, what's right and what's wrong, what's a problem, you know, right. and, uh, and what's not. Yeah. Well, my first question was going to be about your example of the, the evangelical who maybe has some, extra biblical let's say views of the end times but unlike it seems to me unlike the the roman catholic i can't you know apologies to any roman catholics listening i don't know exactly how this works in the tradition but maybe it seems to me unlike the roman catholic the evangelical actually thinks 
no, this belief of mine, it's straight from the Bible. Whereas it seems like the Catholic tradition is more okay with this traditional, you know, in, interpretation like no this is yeah like i know it's like loosely based on the text but this is just how the church which is authoritative has interpreted things right right so that does get us right to the heart of this question of how how tradition is used Mm -hmm. right so the the difference is uh our stereotypical you know broad brush roman catholic uh has a dogma that essentially says it's okay for tradition and scripture to be on a level with one another because that tradition comes from uh, the teaching authority of the church Mm -hmm. and the church kind of provides the context in which scripture or tradition uh, exist. And so it's okay to basically follow a tradition that has no basis or little basis in scripture because tradition's job is uh, it's how the church fills in the blanks it's supposed to work that way so we have tradition and and scripture as as like legs of a stool basically and and if you take one of those out the stool's going to collapse the evangelicals in a different situation i think because in theory at least he he do, isn't meant to have a tradition and so because of that when he does have a tradition it's very hard to acknowledge that that's what it is and this is why you see a lot of people who have uh, so speculative interpretations of prophecy, as an example, and they have a difficult time just saying this is an interpretation. It's really important to say, no, this is what the Bible teaches, because if I say it's a, if I say it's a tradition, well, I'm not supposed to have that. Right, I'm, I'm I'm only supposed to believe what the Bible teaches, yeah. and so paradoxically, you have a tradition, but it's an unacknowledged one. And I think, in some ways, that becomes, if not more problematic, at least as problematic as having a tradition that sits side by side with Scripture. Mm. Right, that that um, both situations, if you think about it will tend to de-emphasize what scripture says, right? Either I have a tradition that can always trump scripture, reinterpret it, whatever, or I have a a tradition that we're going to pretend isn't a tradition at all, but is in fact scripture. Yeah. And, and in both cases, I think you, you are not making distinctions that it would be really helpful to make. Yeah. Because for the evangelical having, a, tr- a tradition, whatever it may be, would presumably be something on top of scripture. Is that the problem for, for them? Well, I think, yeah, the, the, the idea is, again, this is, this is that broad brush yeah. stuff again, yeah. but, but if your idea was, okay, the problem with the medieval church was that the tradition was ruling over scripture and the solution was to get rid of the tradition so that all you would have is scripture, then acknowledging that you still have a tradition is a problem. And so all of the stuff you hold on to, it's really important. Like you're motivated to believe that your interpretation of that text is the only possible reading of the text. 
because if you don't believe that, then maybe you you have to subordinate it too much, right? And and you're just saying, well, I have my interpretation, you have yours. So uh, again, this will or won't apply to individuals of of every stripe, but generally speaking, I think that's the challenge. Like if if I have a tradition that sits side by side with scripture, then in a sense. I don't ever have to be bound by scripture because that tradition can always kind of interpret it or even cancel it out, right? There are things that uh, the tradition says are okay that scripture forbids. But as long as the tradition says it's okay, then I can tell myself the scripture understands, or sorry, the tradition understands the scripture better than I can understand the scripture, just reading it. Therefore, the tradition must be right, right? And so I'll defer to that. Then, you know, if I say there is no tradition, I'm constantly in this situation where, at least in my experience, you have a lot of ideas about what the Bible teaches, and it just doesn't, or at least doesn't as as strongly as you seem to think it does. And human nature being what it is, those areas tend to be where a lot of the energy is invested. So... The, the doctrine that is plainly taught in scripture ends up being de-emphasized over the, the traditions that are not acknowledged to be traditions. So then the question, I guess, is, okay, what's the right place mm-hmm. for tradition? Like if these are two bad ways to, to do tradition, is there a good way? And I think the answer has to be yes, but, but maybe before we say why, um, maybe we need to say, tradition is inevitable. I think we live in the 21st century, you know, post enlightenment, it's, it's easy to tell ourselves we've liberated ourselves from tradition and that we can operate apart from tradition. But if you think about what tradition is, tradition really is the memory of interpretation. So if the church has a tradition, that tradition consists of essentially a historical consciousness of how Christians in the past have interpreted scripture or how they have used the light of nature and Christian prudence to navigate the areas where scripture is silent, Mm. right? And the Westminster Confession talks about both of those things, right? In in chapter one, section six, Mm -hmm. it talks about everything that, that is necessary for salvation is either clearly taught in scripture or can be deduced by good and necessary consequence. But then it goes on to acknowledge that there are things, for example, about worship and and other areas that that scripture doesn't spell out and that those things are left to the light of nature and Christian prudence guided by the general principles of scripture. So that practice of using the light of nature and Christian prudence guided by the principles of scripture, if you do that over time, what you get is a tradition. Hmm. As long as you don't forget where you came from, as <laughs> yeah. long as you, you remember how the work was done in the past, now you've got a tradition. So in my experience, there are no churches without traditions. Whatever we say, every church has a tradition or even multiple traditions, uh, which inform the beliefs and the practices of the church. If that's the case, then the right place for tradition 
I think it needs to be acknowledged. We need to be able to say this is a tradition, but we also need to be able to subordinate that tradition to scripture, right? So it can't be on the same level as scripture so that it can correct scripture and overrule scripture, but also can't be unacknowledged so that it becomes scripture to us. It has to be in the open and it has to be in a defined place in Presbyterianism. That's essentially how we function. Uh, We've talked about this in our adult Sunday school class, as we've talked about uh, church polity, for example. Um, There are aspects of the way we do church, the way that we uh, ordain officers, the way that we organize our church government, which although they are inspired by and derived from scripture and principles in scripture, are traditions. They're not clearly spelled out in scripture. They're not the only possible way that you could interpret these things. They're how we've done it. We think for good reason, but we don't put that on the same level as scripture itself. And when I teach that class and talk through those things, I try to be clear that the thing that is clearly taught in scripture is going to be defended by me differently than the thing that is our tradition. So when we talk about the sacraments, we talk about the importance of of a baptism being done in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, the Trinitarian formula. That is literally what Jesus says in the great commission. And so that's going to get hundred percent defense, right? That is scriptural. When we talk about how the sacraments can only be performed by an ordained teaching elder, you know, a lawfully ordained minister, uh, we have to acknowledge that there are cases in scripture, like the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, where it's not so clear cut. We're not sure exactly all the details there. So we're not saying this is the same thing. We're not saying like our, our practice of church office is on a level with the Trinitarian formula. Uh, we're acknowledging there's, there's a difference. One of them is scripture. The other one is tradition informed by scripture. And so I think that's the honest way to proceed to show your work basically. And also to make sure that we know that we're not elevating that, that tradition above scripture. Like even when we're following it and refusing to abandon it, it's always still possible for it to be corrected by scripture. I think that's where tradition ought to live. Yeah, that's helpful because if you, like you said earlier, if you don't acknowledge that your community has any tradition at all, then you don't open yourself up to that possible correction. That's right. Because what we believe is exactly what the Bible teaches. We don't have any interpretations or traditions. We just stick to the text the danger there, though, like you said, is then you're kind of stuck in time for right. one thing. But yeah, you you can't um, you can't see the difference between what's the the light of nature? Was that the, yeah yeah in Christian prudence? Yeah, in Christian, I prudence. mean, in an ideal world, you know, like you think about it, it should be possible, right, to just stick to the text, right? Whatever the Bible clearly says, that's what we're going to believe. We're not going to believe the other stuff. The difficulty with that is, though, there are differences of interpretation, right? They can't all be right, but there are differences. Mm -hmm. And there are things that Scripture addresses but doesn't address fully. Like Even in things that are commanded by Scripture, the details aren't always spelled out. 
So in order to follow those commands, in order to do what we're called to do, we will have to bring some interpretation into it just by the nature of how God has revealed it to us. And so this idea, it's inescapable. Like there has to be some level of interpretation. And the question is just going to be, what do we do with it? So my argument is there's a tendency, if tradition is in the wrong place, for it to kind of uh, go in a bad direction, right? So if, if tradition sits side by side with scripture, in theory, maybe that could work, right? If the tradition is always right about everything, then it would always just be confirming what scripture says and there would never be any problem. But that doesn't seem to be how that works, right? There's a tendency, I think, that that if the two are in conflict, it's funny how scripture never wins. Like the tradition always wins. Same thing on the other end of the spectrum. If we have no tradition, the temptation, I think, is to smuggle stuff in and, and lie to ourselves about how tenuous it is. You know, there are a lot of people who are absolutely convinced that the Bible teaches like a prohibition on alcohol, right? Um, this was not the view of the Christian church until the 19th century, but it quickly became a very popular view. When you ask people about it, they don't say, this is my tradition. They say, this is what the Bible clearly teaches. And they believe that to be true until they really go study and are really challenged on it. And then a lot of times what happens is, okay, this is my tradition, right? You yeah. kind of acknowledge, okay, well, this is how I, I read it. And, and I'm going to just hold on to the way I read it regardless. So again, I, th- I think it's just human nature being what it is. It's better to have tradition out in the open and it's better to make it really clear the authority structure, Yeah, you know? Well, this is interesting. If I'm not mistaken, this episode will drop a round Reformation Sunday. So we're talking about the traditions of the reformers. And of course, one of those traditions is sola scriptura. That's right. This idea that the Bible alone is, I mean, however you want to interpret it, that scripture is at least sufficient, like the Westminster Confession says, to reveal salvation and God's will to us. But um, of course, there's some debate around what sola scriptura really means. And it sounds like what you're saying is well, are you saying that sola scriptura is enough or is it not? Yeah. So I, th- I think like a lot of slogans, it's really important to understand what the slogan means and not to just try to apply it, you know, at face value without that knowledge. So sola scriptura, uh, Keith Matheson in his book, The Shape of Sola Scriptura, contrasts that slogan with another concept he calls solo scriptura, yeah. you know. And in other words, two versions of scripture alone. One of them is this this caricature, this position we've been talking about where we don't acknowledge that there's a tradition. We pretend like we just believe what the Bible says and there's no interpretation involved. Solo scriptura. Um, That's naive at best and and maybe self-deceptive, you know. But sola scriptura is a statement about the sufficiency of scripture specifically as the Westminster confession, again, chapter one, section six talks about it having to do with the the knowledge necessary for salvation. So the idea is that everything that we need to know in order to be saved 
is contained in scripture, either like plainly taught or deducible through good and necessary consequence, it's not something that will subsequently be revealed to us by someone else. So if your church tells you, you know, these actions are necessary to your salvation, but scripture doesn't say that, Sola Scriptura is saying scripture is right and your tradition is wrong. Mm-hmm. Like you can't add through tradition these criteria for salvation. That's the point of it, that that in scripture we have God's complete uh, plan of salvation revealed and everything necessary to us is revealed there and is is knowable by us and, and does not require you know, the man behind the curtain to reveal it to you piece by piece as you go. So if you understand it that way, you can see that there's not a conflict between sola scriptura and a right acknowledgement of tradition because sola scriptura is a way of putting tradition in its proper place, not eliminating it entirely, which isn't possible, but regulating it and bringing it out into the open so that it's possible for tradition to be corrected by scripture or reformed according to scripture. Right. Always reforming. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very helpful distinction and reassuring in a sense that if we get some tradition wrong, it's not a matter of salvation. You know, if, if we keep that firm distinction between what scripture reveals as necessary for salvation. And, and then these traditions where we're trying to make sense of what it looks like to live as, as Christians. Is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what the reformers want to do obviously is they, they want to locate everything we need in God's revelation and in a sense, take it out of the, the, the hands of that parallel authority structure, mm-hmm. that tradition that corrects and supplements scripture and, and in the process, in many cases, seems to overrule and even contradict it. Uh, that's their concern, you know, and, and you can think of, of um, examples of that, but I think about... Um, you know, if you're a, a person just reading the Bible and you you read the second commandment, there's a prohibition on making images of God and worshiping them. You shouldn't bow down to idols, that sort of thing. Um, the <laughs> idol makers of Ephesus freak out when the gospel comes to Ephesus because their whole livelihood is making idols of, of Diana, the huntress. And so uh, Paul doesn't, tell them, guys, this is actually good for you because in addition to Diana statues, we're going to need some of all the saints. Uh, instead, like the, these idol makers really seem to think their, their business is done when the gospel comes in. And so imagine, you know, you're, you're reading this in scripture, but then you're surrounded by representations of God all around you. And you're told to kneel before them and to pray to them and, and, um, and you're like, well, how do these things go together? This doesn't seem right. Basically the, the whole iconoclasm controversy, right. you know, for, uh, thousands of years. And, um, and if the answer is, well, whatever the Bible says, number one, you're in no position to interpret it. And number two, we say, 
this thing that's the opposite of the Bible is actually what the Bible teaches. And, and it's our job to tell you what it means. It, that just doesn't feel as convincing as, as uh, you'd want it to be. Right. Because it just makes you wonder like, where else are we not doing what the Bible says? Right. And so there's a, that I, I think that as a case study that kind of helps you understand why in a period of time when it was all about getting back to the sources, it was all about, you know, getting behind all of these, these corruptions and, and syncretistic um, adaptations and finding out like what, what is the actual Christian faith that, that of course you would not only start from scripture, but you would privilege scripture above these traditions, especially you know, when you knew that they were of relatively recent emergence, you know, that, uh, you just wouldn't want to be bound by them. And so I think that kind of helps you, you get sort of the flavor, like in, in magisterial Protestantism, it's not about escaping tradition. It's not about, you know, pretending we don't have a tradition. It's just about making sure that tradition can't come to, um, dominate or, or capture the conscience in a way that's contrary to scripture. Yeah. Well, that brings us to one last point that I wanted to talk about. We've sort of been using the terms tradition and interpretation interchangeably here. And I think listeners will understand why based off the conversation, but I wonder if there's a sense in which we can understand tradition as more like the expression of faithfulness through time, through space and time. Mm. Like maybe we can't expect a faithful interpretation of scripture to look the exact same in every context across space and time, such that a Scottish Christian in the, I don't know, you know, 12th century or something, Mm -hmm. if they were Christians there, then might look different than a modern Christian in Nebraska. Yeah. And they have different traditions and are they, you know, are those just matters of interpretation or that? Okay. That's a great question. And I I think here we need two different terms. Let's, let's say tradition versus enculturation. Okay. Because I think tradition over time is informed by culture, but but also shapes culture and, and, and transcends culture. But there is always this room for enculturation, right? That the gospel as it's lived will look different from culture to culture and time to time, precisely because large components of what God has called us to are left to Christian prudence in the light of nature, right? By design, mm-hmm because he gives us wisdom and expects us to use it like that, that variation is a feature, not a bug, right? So it shouldn't be surprising to us that 21st century Christians do not worship in exactly the same way as 12th century Christians, Mm -hmm. right? Because our cultures are different and all of that, you know, however, tradition isn't just enculturation. And I think this is important because a lot of times today, people who are aware of that cultural component will essentially try to dismiss all tradition as enculturation, 
right? So the traditions of the church, so let's say the traditions that inform Christian worship in the 21st century, it's easy to look at all that and say, well, that is just Western, you know, or that is just European or that's, you know, whatever that's, that's an enculturation. And there are all of these other equally valid enculturations. Um, but I want to make a distinction, right? I think there, there's a, a tradition of interpretation over time that is transcending those enculturations, even if in some cases it arises out of them. And that is something worth giving deference to and worth inheriting. Um, Tradition, I think, is something that is meant to be passed down. It's meant to be inherited. A lot of us today who didn't grow up with that have a sense that something that should have been passed down wasn't. And so I feel like that's a distinction we need to make. So we're not in, in danger of like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. You know, that, that if you're thinking about, um, you know, the circumstances of worship, what we do in worship, how we do it, things like that. Yes. Those are questions of enculturation, but not just questions of enculturation and, and culture might not be like the deciding factor mm-hmm. in how we do them. There's that, uh, is it Yaroslav Pelikan? Mm, okay, pronounce yeah. his name? I don't even remember. Uh, he has this famous quote, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Hmm. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose he, he says, I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. Sure. Right. So that the dead faith of these living people around you, it seems dead anyway. To right. You is what gives tradition a bad, a bad name. But yeah, I like that idea. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. So it's like mm-hmm. these things pass down. Like you were just saying, from- I think you could make, yeah, the same way that we could talk this way about liturgy, right? Yeah. That uh, liturgy has a, a connotation of deadness and formula and that sort of thing. And knowing that you want to inhabit it in a lively way and, and not let it go in that direction. And I think tradition is the same way where you inherit a tradition, but you don't want to be a traditionalist. You know, you, you, you want to be constantly refreshing yourself at the source and your tradition should be a living, you know, breathing ongoing thing. And so, I mean, that's the why that that's the why that's the reason why when we talk about recovering the reform tradition, we're talking about living it in the 21st century, not repristinating it, you know, and, and living in, you know, 16th century Geneva. Um, we want to recover the tradition in order to inform where we are and where God has placed us and um, not just to do sort of a theological reenactment. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.